month ago, I had the opportunity, it's actually about 10 years ago now, the opportunity to go to the Philippines, um, and I love to travel. Does anybody else love to travel? I just love to see the world, you know, see the different parts of the world. And Philippines, Philippines is a beautiful place. There's lots of just incredible geography, amazing mountains and rivers, and just a really gorgeous place. But one of the things I noticed as soon as I got off the plane, started walking through the city of Manila and some of the other areas in the Philippines, was a very distinct and unique smell. And it was the smell of goat. No, it wasn't the goat. It was the smell of kind of like hot trash. You know, you know that smell. I mean, you've been to New York City. How many have been in New York City? You know, you get off, you get out of Grand Central Station, you're like, man, this is exciting. This is, oh, what is that? You know? And of course, like, right now in New York is the time where it all comes alive, doesn't it? Because if you've ever been to New York City in the winter, it's like, that's ah, not that bad. And then all of a sudden, everything th- starts to thaw, and it's just like that thing, you know, that just gets on you. Well, it was like that thing times 10,000. I mean, it was a pretty rough environment. And where I was in the Philippines, they had some major, I'm sure it's not this way everywhere, but they had some major sanitation issues, issues with, uh, you know, like people's sanitation issues, and then also issues with like, um, you know, trash. And so I just snagged a couple pictures that kind of illustrate, those aren't leaves. Um, And then the other one, bam. So it's just a pretty big problem, you know, and so where I, when I was there a while ago, they were, um, they were trying to figure out how to solve this problem, and the government was doing all these sort of larger initiatives to try to solve the problem. So they put in pipelines for sewer systems, you know, and then they put in, uh, you know, all the filtration systems, and they installed all the plumbing necessary, and they actually went into huts all throughout the Philippines in the specific area that I was in, and they put toilets in the huts, and it was a pretty huge initiative. I'm sure it cost them tons and tons and tons of money. And they just invested because they're really looking to solve this problem, you know. And so we get there, and uh, we weren't doing anything directly with that. We were just kind of watching and observing the issue. And we get there, and we're walking through the huts of the Philippines, and we notice that there are very few toilets actually in the huts. And we're thinking to ourselves, what's going on here? You know, I wonder what the, what the issue is. And what had happened was many of the people had ripped the toilets out of their hut, sold the toilet, and bought a TV. And they were watching American television... You know, uh, learning all about the newest shows and, you know, dealing with their, you know, poop the way that they were uh, beforehand. And, and, you know, I, I looked at that and it's, a, I mean, I'm sure that the government was like pretty enraged about this. You know, I mean, what a mess that they're trying to, you know, fix. And now the people are sort of working against them. And it's not that the people were trying to work against them. It's that the, that the government kind of made a, a mistake. And what they did is they changed the environment, right? But they didn't actually change the people. They changed the environment that the people were in, but they didn't change the people themselves. So that's my little analogy to transition into what I would call human religion that has the exact same problem. I define it like this. Human religion is the system built by people to reach God. The system built by people to reach God. And we all kind of have, there's like 31 flavors of human religion. You know what I'm saying? Like there's actually probably more than that. But uh, I live right by a really good ice cream place that has like 250 flavors of ice cream. Um, but, uh, But human religion probably has more flavors than Bill's Carousel. You know, that's the ice cream place. But uh, what we do is we come up with a strategy to make ourselves good before God. And, you know, we we stack our blocks. I borrowed these from my sons. Um, I'm sure they don't mind that dad stole all their blocks. But uh, we, uh, we build our system on the idea that if we could do enough good things that the day we die, 
God would accept us. And this is probably the general reason. I've talked, I'm not even exaggerating, to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people about how they interact with God. And I usually ask a question, well, when you die, what do you think happens? And of course, people have a lot of different opinions about that, right? They say, well, I'm just going to be in the dirt. They say, I'm going to stand before God, whatever. But people kind of have varying degrees you know, of opinion on that. But they, most people would say, I will stand before God one day, right? I'm going to... Stand before God one day. And uh, I feel like I'm playing that game. What's that game? Yeah, thank you. Never was too good at that game, so this might go bad for me. But, you know, and, and what they would say is, well, you know, Justin, honestly, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I've done significant amount of decent things. I'm not Hitler. I'm not Bin Laden. You know, I'm like, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, and I mean, yeah, I've done some bad things. But by and large, my, you know, my actions have been pretty good. And so when I ask them, well, when you stand before God, what do you think is going to happen? He says, well, I think God's going to have grace. I think he's going to love me. I think he's going to show me his love because I've been pretty a good person. You know, it's kind of this Santa Claus ideology, right? And the strange thing is that, you know, every religion sort of has a flavor of this. Human religion has a flavor of this of every different kind. So the Muslims would say that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, that one day the scales will be brought and they'll weigh each, good and bad. And if your good outweighs your bad, then you will be opportunity to enter into paradise, right? The Buddhist or the Hindu would say that karma is this, is this strength that kind of you're born with and then your good deeds support your karma and create more good karma or your bad deeds hinder your karma and pull you into a place of pain and eventually if you reach a good place of karma, you can, you can find enlightenment. In fact, every religion has a different flavor and this is where people say, listen, every religion kind of goes to the same place. There's a grain of truth in that. Because every religion sort of does have this idea. In fact, for myself, growing up, I wasn't a super passionate Catholic, but I would call myself a Catholic. And so growing up as a Catholic, I didn't understand a whole lot of things about God, but I did know that it was better for me to do good things than bad things, right? And so I would say, well, I'll go to confession or I'll go to church, mass, and I'll do something that will hopefully, you know, be greater than my bad things. And this whole system is kind of the way that most of us build our religious ideology, And if you're here today and you'd call yourself a Christian, I don't know if you're Episcopal, if you're Lutheran, if you're Catholic, whatever your flavor of Christianity would be, my fear and my concern is that you have misunderstood what Scripture says about how we get to God and you are somehow operating off of something that is similar to this. Because the problem with this, guys, and most of you know this, is that it doesn't actually work. Is that this way of getting to God gets you hope at best and condemnation at worst. It gets you to a place where you say, well, I think I'm probably, hopefully, potentially good with God, but I'm not really totally positive. You know, I'm just, I'm just betting, and I'm hoping that God will accept me on the day that I stand before him. I'm thinking, possibly, there's no assurance, there's no confidence, there's certainly no peace. And what I found is that this way of operating was just a band-aid for my conscience. In other words, I'd put it on my conscience, and my conscience would be like, dude, you have sinned, you've messed up, you've done things wrong. And what I would do is I would strategically... Ignore my conscience and justify my actions. Haven't you ever done this? I remember reading an interview with Al Capone. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Have you ever heard of Al Capone? Okay, a lot of us have. So he was a pretty not-so-nice guy. And one of the things he said in the interview while he was in prison was, you know, everything I did, I really did in my heart for the public benefit. It's like, really? 
I remember another guy uh, that was famous in the early 1900s. His name was Two-Gun Crowley. He was famous for brutally murdering people. And finally, they caught this guy. They gunned him down, and they find his dead body. And when they found his dead body, he was holding a note up to his chest. It was covered in blood. They peeled the note out of his hand, and the police read the note, and it said, Beneath this jacket is a weary heart, but a good one who never meant anyone any harm. What's happening here? Well, people are masterfully gifted at justifying our failures. And you say, listen, Justin, I mean, come on, you know, honestly, I mean, I know I didn't, you know, report everything on my taxes, but nobody reports everything. I mean, I know I kind of undermined that guy for that job opportunity, but the truth is he was kind of a jerk anyways. And I know I kind of, you know, cut that person off, but the reality is, is that they were, they were an idiot. They were following me too close. You know, we have always a good reason for whatever our crime is. We have an, an incredible innate ability to justify the things we do. And what I want to do right now for the next couple minutes is introduce to you a radically different solution than what all human religion offers. And my concern, seriously, is that many people would profess to know Christ but still don't know the solution because what I'm going to tell you today is actually the most radical, crazy thing that I could ever share any time at any place. And this thing that I'm going to share is going to rub you the wrong way. It's actually kind of counterintuitive. When you hear it, you're going to go, no, no. It can't be that good. It can't be that, it, no, something, something's strange here because something inside of you is going to push against it because every one of us is hardwired to believe this way. But if you would just listen today, that hope will start to creep into your soul. And I have found, and many of my friends have found, and many of the people that I love have found that if that hope that I'm talking about today gets inside of you, it will create the most explosive joy that any human being could ever experience for any reason at any time. And my prayer is that some of you would encounter that joy today. So I'm going to read in the Bible. Uh, uh, Titus chapter 3. Now, if you're kind of new to the scripture... You should turn to somebody right now and say, hey, this is going to be good. You should pay attention. Go ahead. Come on. Have a little fun with me. Turn to somebody. Say, this is going to be good. You should pay attention. I heard that guy that just said, I don't think this is going to be that good. Um, you know, I'm, not, I'm thinking about leaving. Um, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. I'm going to read a few passages in the Bible. This is just to give you a little context, okay? This letter was written by the Apostle Paul. He's one of the early church fathers. He wrote this letter to a man named Titus who was in leadership in the churches. And uh, he wrote it to explain what I'm about to explain to you. That was the big idea of the letter. So I want to take one passage um, from this. I'm going to actually read three or four verses today. And I think it's going to shed some light on a very, very different direction. It says this. For, this is in verse 3 of chapter 3. For we ourselves were once... Foolish. Any foolish people here? Just me. Okay. No, this, when we hear the word foolish, we think stupid, don't we? But that's not what actually this word means. It means without understanding. It means that there was a time in our life where we didn't understand. Now, that's true of all of us, right? That we were once, you know, there were things we didn't get, right? Disobedient, led astray. That word led astray means wandering. Now, that's an interesting idea because I think that's exactly where a lot of us find ourselves. In fact, look at me for a second. This way of operating towards God, which, by the way, is the most important question in the world. Who is he and how do I interact with him? This way only leads to wandering. You can't find confidence and assurance and certainty operating with God this way. And so many of us find ourselves right there, wandering. And you may consider yourself a follower of Christ, whatever, but you divert back. In fact, I've found for years, if I don't train my brain to think differently, I will consistently divert back to have I done enough for God to like me. Something deeply wired in our souls is trying to earn our way to God. And so we once 
were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Were you guys blessed by the people that had the courage to come up here with a big piece of cardboard and tell you about their junk? I mean, come on, that takes courage, doesn't it? I was like such a lame golf clap, by the way. But anyways, um, you know, you know uh, I was blessed by that. I was blessed by that because it takes some guts to admit your issues and to confess that you've actually changed, not by your own strength, but by God's strength. And I don't know your story. You know it. But I can guarantee something. If you're sitting here and you're over the age of four, you've probably been a slave to some passions. And maybe for you it was success. Maybe for you it was some sexual thing. Maybe for you it was money. Maybe for you it was gambling. Maybe for you it was fill in the blank. But you, were a, you pursued that passion. This is the way it always works. You pursue it, right? You know what I'm talking about. You pursue it and it's good and it's pleasurable and it's helpful and it's nice. And before you know it, there's this moment. Maybe it was prescription drugs. Maybe it was marijuana. Maybe it was, maybe it was, maybe it was, you know, the glory of education. I don't know what it was for you, but something, and some of those things can be good and go bad, but something started to become so important to you that somewhere in your mind it shifted from you being pleasured by it to now you being controlled by it. You know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden you can't not take that pill and you can't not see that person and you can't not go to that meeting because there's something in you that's drawn to it and you find human beings don't make the best masters but we have a tendency towards slavery and so we end up becoming enslaved by things that were supposed to be pleasurable and then all the pleasure is gone because of the slavery and the only way to dull the slavery is to embrace the pleasure again and the cycle continues Do you know what i'm saying today three people have experienced that the rest of you are perfect but for me i've experienced that tug i've experienced it and it stinks it stinks and that's what he's talking about here he says you know you've you've done that you've been a passion to your you've been a a slave to your passion to your pleasure passing our days in malice and envy and this is the result when we start to become enslaved, we start to become envious. Why did she get that? Why does he have that? I don't know. There's a thousand fill-in-the-blanks there that apply to you. But we become envious, hated by others, and hating one another. So hate starts to creep into our souls. But then here we go. Something turns in verse 4. There is a three-letter word that is amazing. And it is the word, but. But. Aren't you grateful for God's but right here? Come on, you can laugh. That was a lame joke. So, but, 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 something just shifted. The scripture pivots right here. But, check this out. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Now, that's loaded. But the first thing I want you to recognize here is that the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior is a he that it's a person, that what I'm telling you, that human religion leaves you in a system that doesn't change the heart, but there is a he, there is an entirely different solution to the problem, there is an entirely unique solution to the problem, and that solution is a person, that person is the most famous, most unique person in all of human history, and whether you believe in him casually, whether he's controlled your life, whether you ignore him completely, you will have to deal with this person at some 
sometime or another, and this person is the person of Jesus. And so maybe you've got issues with religion. That's fine. I've got plenty of them. But I want you now to take your eyes off of religion and think about this person, Jesus, because he's done some crazy things. There's been more songs written about him than any person in the world. There's been more books written about him than any person in the world. There's been more artwork painted about him than any person in the world. And the crazy thing is that he claimed things that no one else has ever claimed. And so many of us would say, well, I'd like to think of this guy as just a nice teacher, a prophet among many prophets. But what I want to show you today is that this Jesus has introduced us to something that is so radically profound and different that it rocked my world, changed my heart. And I pray that it does the same for you today. So how can anybody claim to save everyone? I mean, think about that idea. You might be a Christian for 30 years. I want you to rethink about this idea because what I found is what I'm going to share to you, you need to hear every single day because somehow you leak it and so do I. So how can one person save the whole world? What would qualify them? Well, let's look at a few of the things that Jesus claimed. First, he claimed to be God. Pretty big deal. Anybody else God here? Nobody else. Okay, so, you know, the claim to be God is a pretty significant idea, but if you don't understand what Jesus was actually claiming, you could misunderstand and think that he was claiming something that others had claimed. But in fact, Jesus was not claiming something that others had claimed. There's many people throughout history that said that they were like half God, half man, that were Roman Greek gods. This is a common theme. There were gods in Egypt that were men. There were all these different ideas about leaders and prime ministers being godlike. That is not a unique idea, and that was not what Jesus was claiming. Jesus was claiming that he was the God, the one who created everything. The Hebrew idea of God, which was one all-powerful, all-encompassing being who was over all, through all, and in all, this idea of of God, he was saying, I'm not just a God, I'm not a mini God, I am the one who designed trees, I'm the one who designed the atmosphere, I'm the one who said, light, and there was light, that's me, that was my voice that did that, that's who I am. And God actually gave himself a name when he appeared to Moses through the scriptures in the Old Testament, and he gave himself the name I am. Kind of a strange name, isn't it? I mean, imagine how awkward that conversation can go, who are you? I am. Well, yeah, but who? I am. You are who? I am. You know, I mean, like, that's just altogether strange. But the problem was that you couldn't put a name on God. He said, I am who I am. That's it. I was, I will be, I always will be. I am. And so God gets this crazy name that he gives himself, and Jesus actually takes that name for himself. He says, I am the I am. What a radical idea. It was so radical that the people of his day said, we are going to kill you, you liar. That's what they said. In, Mark, in John chapter 10, they attempted to do that, and they eventually did that. And Jesus, in the midst of that, said, you can't kill me. I am, I am. But I'll give up my life willingly, is what he said. He calls himself the Son of God. He calls himself the Messiah. He's making a claim that no one else has ever made. He's making a claim that he's the Savior of the world. And then he goes beyond that and he says, hey, listen, I'm not just saying that I'm God. I'm also saying that I'm without sin. Anybody else without sin? Now, you may have a different definition of sin. People don't like that word sin. It's not exactly the pluralistic cool word of 2012. But whatever it is that you call it, you know that you've messed up, right? Some of you are sitting next to your wife and... You can't lie about it, right? You know you messed up. You know you've done things that were selfish, that were on, you know, whatever it is for you. But Jesus claims that he didn't sin. Now think about this for a second. His mom and his half-brother James both said he was God and claimed that he didn't sin. That's a pretty significant accomplishment in life, right? My mom is here. Hi, mom. And my, my stepbrother was here earlier today. And, uh, you know, the truth is neither one of them is going to go to, the, you know, go to the, uh, the line for me and say that I've never sinned. Not at all, right? 
didn't take long. Probably the first time I opened my mouth, I started sinning, right? We, we, the fact that these people were convinced of this is a crazy idea. John chapter 8 says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Speaking of God the Father, 1 Peter 2.22, who's Peter was one of Jesus' closest followers, he says of Jesus, he committed no sin. So we go back to this idea, and some of us are hiding behind this idea, saying, well, I believe in Jesus kind of casually. I believe he's kind of like all the other spiritual guides and leaders. What you are saying makes no sense, because if Jesus is just another spiritual guide like Buddha and Muhammad and Confucius and a thousand others, then he was lying about who he was fundamentally because no one else claimed to be what he said he was. And so he's been lying the whole time. So that doesn't make him a very good spiritual leader or unless like C.S. Lewis said, the guy's crazy. And I wouldn't exactly follow a psychopath either, right? And so we get stuck in this position that says, who is this man who claimed these crazy things? And the biggest thing that is applying to us today is first that he's God, and next that he had no sin, and then thirdly that he claims to bring us back to God. He says in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In Hebrews 5, 9, he actually is given this title, the author of eternal salvation. Isn't that a crazy title? That you author, do we have any, any creative people in the room? Any authors, writers, three where, what are the rest of you guys doing with their, no, I'm just kidding. I'm sure that there's many of us, right, that maybe you, you know, maybe you love to create websites, or maybe you love to draw, or maybe you love to paint, or maybe you love to write songs, or maybe you love to create short stories or books, or whatever it is that you like to create. What they're saying about Jesus is that he actually authored, he created a road to salvation that is so radically different than this road. Well, how did he do it? What does scripture say? Let's read it together in the passage that we've been looking at. It says, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. What? Not because of works done by us. He just, he just kicked the bottom out of our whole strategy here. Well, I've been doing good things. I thought God liked me enough because I did enough things. Listen, you don't know how many old ladies I helped across the street. You don't know how much money I gave to church that nobody knows about. You don't know how many times I took care of my, you know, uh, you know, crippled mother or whatever it was for me. You don't understand how many good deeds I've been stacking up for to make him like me, Justin. You can't say he kicked the, the bottom out of this whole thing. He kicked it right out. Not by works done by us. In other words, this doesn't have anything to do with you being saved. This doesn't have anything to do with you being saved. And that reality is uncomfortable for every person. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to something very different. According to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Don't miss what I'm saying here today. This word regeneration, it's two words put together. It's the word palin in the Greek, not like the politician. Palin, which means again. And then it's the word genesis, which means beginning or birth. And so what the scripture is saying is that Jesus has given us an opportunity to have a beginning again. That he's given us an opportunity to be completely clean again, being justified by Grace. Now, grace is probably one of the most misunderstood concepts in all of the earth today. And what I'm telling you grace is, according to the scripture, is grace is God, listen, it is God doing something that you could not do. 
It is God giving something that you could not earn. It is God accomplishing something on your behalf that there is nothing that you could do to accomplish. And the scripture is saying that this idea, this reality of grace is the new initiative that Jesus initiated on the cross. He said, listen, this system is broken. I'm going to introduce a gift. And it's a gift that you cannot earn. It's a gift that you do not deserve. But it is a gift that I am going to give because it is the the only way that you will get back to God. So instead of your strategy, I am going to introduce my strategy and all your deeds, sorry about that, don't mean anything because I am introducing a block that's far bigger that will actually get you where you want to go. It is the reality and the truth of grace. That was an awesome time to clap right there. You totally missed it. The reality and the truth of grace. You say, well, Justin, I don't understand. How does this work? Let me make it clear here, okay? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. This will blow your mind. It messes with me every time I read it. It says that God made him. Who's him? Jesus. Jesus, who knew no sin. You might be a Christian 30 years. This will speak to you today. God made him who knew no sin, nothing wrong with this guy, to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You missed it. God made him who knew no sin, that's Christ, to become sin for us. So that we might become, here's what I'm telling you, the entire basis of the Christian faith is not based on what you do. It is not based on how righteous you are. The entire basis of the Christian faith is based on this idea that theologians call double imputation. That's a big, weird, two-letter, two-word sentence thing. And double imputation, check this out, is this. It's that Jesus Christ dies on the cross and in his death, every sin that you ever committed from the day you were born to the day you die gets imputed to him. The guilt, the penalty, the wrath, the shame, the effects of that sin get put on the cross on the shoulders of Jesus That's crazy enough as it is. But it's a double imputation that not only does that happen, but that all of the righteousness, perfection of Jesus the Son gets put on you in the eyes of God. You say, well, Justin, how do I get right with God? You receive what Christ already did. You can't earn your way There is no way to do enough good things. But Jesus Christ on the cross has already imputed to you, given to you, listen to me, his righteousness. So when you die, the day that you die, because guess what? Every one of us will. And you need to answer this question now, not in 20 years, not in 30 years, today. When you die and you stand in front of God, not in a physical body, but in your spiritual form, you will meet this God. You will meet the God that I'm talking about today. And the day that you do that, if he says to you, how and why should I let you into my place of paradise, my place of rest, the place that I told you about in this book, how and why should you get in? If you say, well, you don't understand. I've done a lot of good things. What I'm telling you is you are investing in a flawed system and it will never give you access to where God is. But if you have Christ 
in your heart, if you have received him and surrendered to him by faith, then grace is imputed to you. All of his righteousness is put on your shoulders. It has nothing to do with your deeds and everything to do with his perfection. And all of your sin has been paid for on the cross. There's assurance and peace with God. And it only comes through the door, Jesus Christ. As many as received him, he's given them a right to become children of God. Jesus Christ is the supreme architect to bring you to God through the gift of his grace. Where do you stand with God today? Are you still in some silly form trying to earn your way to a God who is perfect that you could never find your way to? Are you still saying, well, I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to do better, realizing that you'll never do better outside of the grace of God. What you need is regeneration. Christ comes to live in your heart. His peace begins to dwell inside your soul. His spirit begins to empower you. And now you can do things that you'd never been able to do before because of grace. When people took those cardboard signs and said, listen, I was this way. Now I'm this way. It wasn't self-effort. It wasn't community. It wasn't a church that helped them change. All those things play a part, but it was Christ and Christ alone who gave the grace to transform the human heart. That is a crazy idea. And this gospel, that word gospel just simply means good news, is incredibly exclusive and incredibly inclusive at the exact same time. What do I mean by that? Just hear me out today. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. If you think that you can do this quasi-spirituality, take a little of Krishna, a little bit of the secret, a little bit of this, a little bit, and think that that's going to equal into Christ, you need to understand it's a deception and a lie. It is not the truth. Jesus is this one road. Now, that rubs against everything that we don't like, doesn't it? I mean, we're a pluralistic society. You can't be saying you have the only way. Listen, he's the only one that has done what he did. He's the only one who died in your place. He's the only one who hung on a cross. He was the only one that was God fully, man fully, and died for you and rose again to show us that the check had cleared, that the payment was done in full. He's the only one. He's the only one who said he was without sin. He's the only one that said he was the door. Buddha said he's pointing to the door, but he himself was not the door. And he was not pointing to the door because it was not Christ he was pointing to. It was Christ alone that has made a path for you. That's it. That's the only way. That is incredibly awkwardly, uncomfortably exclusive. And at the exact same time, friend, hear me, it is incredibly inclusive because he doesn't care what race you are. He doesn't care who you voted for at the last election. He doesn't care how much money you have in the bank account. He doesn't care what your social status is or what car you drive. All can come. All can come. All can come. And that includes you. Come to him. So what are we supposed to do with this truth? Martin Luther said, I have to preach grace to myself every day. If you're a Christian here, you have to realize that you will leak this by the time you get to the parking lot. That you'll start feeling guilty or shameful or bad about something, and you'll start kicking in to try to earn your way back to God. And what I'm telling you is that this grace must be applied to your conscience on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. And let me tell you, if you will apply it to your conscience, it will bring peace to your soul. It will bring real peace to your soul. Well, what's the motive? It's love. That's it. Two things the scripture talks about in order to receive this grace, and they're not things we do. 
It's repentance and faith. It's just the way we change. Repentance simply means to turn from my self way, from my two stacks, from me trying to earn God, turn from that to Christ, to the person of Jesus. That's what repentance is, to turn. And the second thing is faith, to believe, to rest in his forgiveness. Some of you, you've been battling anxiety, fear, unbelief, worry, doubt, anger. And you're saying, I don't have any solution to these things. I'm taking pills. I'm going to classes. I'm meeting with counselors. Justin, what am I supposed to do? Those things aren't all necessarily bad all the time. But what I'm saying is that when the Prince of Peace takes residence in your heart, you can chase out every fear because he's accepted you. Some of you, your entire life, look at me, is, is defined by the fact that your dad rejected you, is defined by the fact that you didn't get into that school or because you didn't get a grade in that class or because you didn't get on that team. Some of you, that's your life definition, is being run by this idea of rejection. And what I'm telling you is there is one that is bigger than any of those that have rejected you who accepts you. And that acceptance is perfect and complete and he will never take it away if you trust him. This is crazy news. 